Welcome in, friends, to episode two of Wasn't That Special, 50 Years of SNL, where we take you season by season from SNL's first year all the way through its 50th year, which technically hasn't happened yet, but we are confident the show still will be on the air to fulfill our contractual requirement to bring you 50 years of (laughs) SNL. My name is Scott Bertram, Christian Schneider standing by. Christian, how are you? I am great. Quite decent, I must say. Now, before we get started covering season one, the beginning of it all of SNL, we got to tell you once again, this episode is free. Our teaser episode previously was free for everyone. You get a taste for what's going to be happening here on Wasn't That Special. And from that point forward, most content will be available only for subscribers via our Substack, which is at wasn'tthatspecial.com. Again, that's wasn'tthatspecial.com. So yes, we, we are asking you to help us continue this project all the way through. Keep the show ad-free. You can subscribe monthly to get the uh, season episodes or get a significant discount if you join us with the annual package. And then there's our executive producer tier. That gives you access to posts featuring our unused notes for every episode. We, we can't fit everything in these shows, you know. You'll also get links to many of the research materials we'll be reading to prep for the episodes. You can start threads at our chat page, and there'll be a vibrant community of chatters there. And you'll be able to take part in our Wasn't That Special series-ending crowdsourced rankings of seasons, cast members, and more. But you got to be part of the executive producer tier via Substack to do that. And we will still have some future content that'll be free, but... If you want the full experience, you'll need to subscribe, and it'll be worth your worth, worth your while, no matter what the street value. Wasn't that special dot com? Wasn't that special dot com? Join us there for this journey through fifty years of SNL. Christian, we come yes. to the part that we've been waiting for when we begin our walk through the fifty SNL seasons, and appropriately enough, we will begin with season one. Now, on our past episode, our last episode, our first episode, we told people about how SNL came to be, the people involved in the show, who's Lauren Michaels, how did the cast come together, how do we get to a point where we are about to go live on Saturday night with George Carlin as host and kick off this season one. We brought everyone up to this point where season one of SNL debuts. Wow, that was quite a lead up. Right, um, now you got to pay it off. <laughs> I should note for people that we have spent years researching this. I, I, here's how deep into the research we are. I read Chris Catan's memoir for you people. <laughs> so, and and if I'm not mistaken, enough. even Jay Moore's uh, <laughs> book. I did. Yeah. I did. Uh, if you want to find out what SNL cast member is completely bald, uh, secretly. Uh, stay tuned for the Jay Moore episode. Anyway, uh, so yeah, we're in 1975 now. Uh, we walked you through how we got here, and now we're leading up to October 11th, where we have uh, the first episode. We've got a very high uh, George Carlin set to kick off the show um, with uh, some of his existing stand-up. Actually, according to people who were on the show, Lorraine Newman tells a story about how uh, George Carlin was so high, he actually could not be in any sketches. There's supposed to be a sketch on Alexander the Great's high school reunion 
something something to that effect, and they had to cut it just because Carlin <laughs> couldn't remember any lines. Um, he was he was so high uh, at the time, so he couldn't be in any sketches, which is why the episode is mostly uh, just him doing his his existing stand up routine. Well, um, Carlin has a slightly different recollection or tells the story differently. Uh, he says that he told Lorne he's just not a good actor, and so he didn't want to be in sketches. This is George Carlin talking with the Television Academy Foundation. I told Lorne Michaels on the, on the first Saturday Night Live, and I'm full of cocaine that week, full of cocaine, just completely boxed. And um, I said to him that I didn't want to be in the sketches. I said, I don't feel comfortable, I don't feel competent. Let me do a number of monologues. Just let me, instead of doing a big opening monologue and then being in sketches, let me do a lot of little monologues. And he did. And it worked. Uh, but I can still, I can't really watch that with comfort. There's one place where I can see myself grinding, my jaw grinding from the cocaine. And my, I can see my discomfort from the cocaine and from being out of place. What I thought we would do to start is talk just about the first season in general before we start talking about specific episodes. One of the things that I was noticing as as I was watching the season is when does the show really start to round into place and become the show that we actually recognize? Because with the Carlin episode and then episode two really is basically just a Simon and Garfunkel reunion. Yeah. <laughs> if you like Paul Simon, you'll love episode two. Paul Simon famously good friends with Lorne Michaels, as he will tell everybody all the time. Um, you know, there's a, a joke amongst cast members. If Lorne says he went to dinner with Paul, you have to always follow up with the question, Simon or McCartney. <laughs> um, so yeah, inveterate name dropper. But uh, yeah, so let me just start by pitching that question to you. When did you feel in the season that it really started to become the SNL that we all know and love? It, t- it took a while um, because these first episodes, much like, well, hopefully, we're, hopefully we'll coalesce much faster. But they're trying to figure out how this mix is going to work. Famously, the dress rehearsal for episode one went I believe three hours, three and a half hours for <laughs> what, 65 minutes of material. And so they had to cut it down drastically. Billy Crystal was supposed to be part of episode one. He was uh, not cut. He was asked to trim his piece down and refused through his manager to do so. So he was off episode one, but you had to get three and a half hours of material down to uh, about 65 minutes or so in total. And recall, you've got the Muppets and you've got Albert Brooks and they've got two separate musical acts and they've got multiple stand-up places. And so the first two episodes, there might be, spitballing what, maybe four total sketches in those first two episodes. So very much not like what the show would be down the road. And as you watch, the first time the show feels like something it would become is episode four with Candace Bergen. And Candace Bergen is a low-key, incredibly important person in SNL's history because you have the first episode with George Carlin, uh, you have the second episode with Paul Simon, which is essentially a Simon and Garfunkel reunion. The third episode with Rob Reiner is not good, and Rob Reiner is sort of a, a, a monster host. He demands all this stuff, and that he's not good on top of that. And so by episode four, 
you still don't know what the heck is going on here. Candace Birkin comes on and begins the week and everybody loves her because she comes in and says, I like what you're doing here. I want to be a part of it. I want to work with you and I want to be a part of this cast. I want to be a part of what you're doing. And so this episode four is the first time that you feel the elements begin to come together in a proper way. Now, it doesn't end there because Robert Klein's next. I think that's a really poor episode. And then you have the big names and they are so big, they overshadow everything else on the show. Lily Tomlin, Richard Pryor. You don't get a real feel for the way SNL is supposed to flow. So I would say, to answer your question in a long way, the very first time, the very first time that you really feel like this is the way it's supposed to be, this is how the show can can be, this is how good it can be, is episode nine, Elliot Gold. And that's the episode for which they won an Emmy, so others agree. But the biggest thing I think with the Elliot Gold episode is a, you get a feel that they are honing in on a real feel for the show and a tone for the show. And I think it's the first time, even a little with Bergen, this is the first time that the cast isn't deferential to the host. It's not, oh, it's Richard Pryor. Oh, it's Lily Tomlin. Let them do their thing. They're very big. They're very important. They're not deferential to Elliot Gould in this episode. And he just becomes integrated into the show like everyone else. He just becomes a part of what the cast is trying to accomplish that week. And for that reason, it's also a great show. But the way the host becomes a part of the cast, the way that he becomes part of the sketches, the way Gold feels so comfortable on stage. Episode 9 with Elliot Gold is the first time that I think it's a very recognizable Saturday Night Live. Agree on all of that. Uh, Candace Bergen is a superstar uh, in the history of SNL to the point where they actually invite her back uh, for the for the Christmas to host the Christmas special. Right. Because she did. I feel she was really game for what they were doing. She She, said that she had she had seen the first couple episodes, which doesn't really make sense because (laughs) the first couple episodes didn't weren't really what she ended up bringing to the show. Right. Um, so it's right around episode four. It, it really starts to look like the show that we, uh, that we came to know. And then also it doesn't hurt that in episode four, you start to have some of the real tentpole sketches uh, where they start moving more to sketches. Like you have land shark, <laughs> for instance, which is a, you know, a couple, couple sketches into, uh, into that show where that's the first sketch where people probably went to their office on Monday and said to themselves, Hey, did you see this land shark thing? And people were probably sitting around their cubicles going, Andy Graham. (laughs) Well, let's hear from one of the cast members, Lorraine Newman, talking to the television Academy foundation about when she thinks the show really began to come together in that first season. Again, it's, it's interesting to see some of those early sketches because we certainly didn't have our format for a while. We didn't have certainly the way the show is structured today. And even, you know, the first, God, I would say seven or eight shows. And we had the Muppets, which was a whole other element that made the show um, really different 
than once they were not there. It, I think it really got together as the show that it is. Getting back to to, to the first episode, um, Bernie Brillstein, who is, of course, super agent to uh, Lauren Michaels and a lot of uh, SNL people, he has a story in his mem- memoir about how chaotic it was just as they were about to go on the air. And evidently, right before they were supposed to go on the air, you know, the first sketch ever is John Belushi as a non-English speaker uh, learning to speak English and Michael O'Donohue is teaching him English uh, and, you know, teaching him phrases like, I want to f- feed your fingers to the fingertips of the Wolverines. And uh, so right before that, sketch was about to go on Belushi had not signed his contract yet right right. and so he's sitting back there and you know the people are like John you can't go on air until you sign this contract and Bernie Brillstein is standing back there he's telling him John you got to sign this contract Brillstein isn't John's agent at that point so John looks at Brillstein and says I will sign this contract if you agree to be my agent and Brillstein says done so he signs the contract walks out and does the first ever sketch on SNL. And Brillstein is like, this is further evidence that John Belushi is a genius uh, in terms of business because he knew how advantageous advantageous it would be to him to have the same agent as Lorne, as the producer of the show. Right. Because, you know, what's good for Lorne is good for, for Belushi uh, and, and vice versa. So John Belushi, business uh, savant, the fourth episode is, is very important. Uh, you're probably not as high on it, but the seventh episode, which is Richard Pryor, I think is yeah. very important. It might to- be, but I'm still left underwhelmed by that episode overall. There are there are certain marks in there. It's the first samurai. Uh, the exorcist sketch is, is pretty good, but I left being overall disappointed by it. I, I expected more. In terms of the sketch by sketch, it may leave you wanting a bit, but just in terms of the vibe, mm-hmm. in terms of this is a show that sh- that demonstrates how dangerous SNL can be. They actually put Pryor on a seven second uh, delay because they were worried about what he was going to say on live live television. They had obviously seen his act before, <laughs> but, but they didn't tell him. And they set the clocks back seven seconds so he wouldn't notice. <laughs> right. But it just it, it just gave the show a certain danger that television hadn't had uh, up until that point with with taped shows. You get the you get the feeling that literally anything can happen on the show. Like Richard Pryor, I mean the you know, the people watching at home had no idea it was on a delay, but they're thinking he could really say anything at any point during this show. And I think that's really what gives the show its edge and what makes, I mean, let's be honest, part of the reason people watch SNL is to see what can go wrong. Sure. You know, some, somebody's going to, you know, say a swear word that they shouldn't say. And, you know, certainly that happens in the future. But uh, to me, that just kind of set, kind of set a bar for what the show could be for uh, what people would come to expect. uh, And just kind of, you know, what, how dangerous the show could be in the future. And uh, yeah, so I think, I think that had a, a big, a big effect in, in the show going forward. So this is a good spot to talk about this because we, we are now going back in the past 48 years, uh, mm. 47 years, whatever it is. I can't do math and trying to 
judge and, and trying to evaluate these episodes so far into the future when the media landscape has changed multiple times uh, over those decades. How did you find it and how do we find it? We can talk together, but but going back and, and trying to put yourself at a place where Richard Pryor on live TV brings you a sense of danger. How do you how do we go back and judge because I, I I will say I don't I still don't think I can fully understand because I wasn't alive how different the show was how it provided this sense of anything can happen I was so unlike other shows in what it was trying to do and trying to accomplish in the way that it got there and that this is a sort of dark and dangerous sort of brand of humor how do we do this how 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 do you how how do you think you'll be able to say what's good or bad 40 plus years into the future. Yeah, this is something I think about all the time while watching these full full seasons from the past. It's, you know, when you watch the show, first of all, you have expectations because everybody's been talking about the first season, you know, is the greatest season ever, the greatest cast ever. And then you watch it and there's kind of a lot of bombs in there. And you're like, okay, well, how much credit do you give them for being the first to do it? You know, the way I would put it is they were building this plane as they were flying it. Right. So how much do you grade on a curve for, you know, what they were essentially making up? They were making up an entirely new type of television on the spot. When we go back and look, we're like, uh, we've kind of seen all this before, but that's because there have been so many imitations in the past 50 years you know, if you grew up watching Mad TV or Kids in the Hall or whatever, you've seen a lot of, uh, you know, better skits. Uh, sorry, better sketches. Thank you. Lauren, thanks. You. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's hard to go back and and say, you know, this is something completely unique to me because we've seen it for the last 50 years. And that, I mean, it's even in competition with SNL itself. I mean, current seasons of SNL are such a finely tuned you know, production, you know, everybody knows where every laugh is, it, you know, it run, runs like a, like a Swiss watch um, because we've been watching it for so long, but when it's brand new, you got to give them a lot of credit, even if it may not live up to, mm-hmm. you know, the, the chuckles per minute. Also, a lot of the references are dated. A lot of the, yeah. a lot we did, of the We did the our jokes. fair share of Wikipediaing during the course of an episode. <laughs> who, who is this person and why should I know who it is? And you do right. have those those 15-minute celebrities, which SNL is perfectly suited to make fun of. And this is part of the genius of it. It's it's live. It's weekly. If something happens, they can do it at that right then, right, right that Saturday. And then it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense a week from now or a year from now. It was that moment in time that it was important for them to poke fun at it or have a joke about it, but it does make it more difficult for us to understand why. Right. Raise your hand if you know who Claudine Langer is. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, we'll probably mention her later, but um, <laughs> they've, got a, they've got a good good bit about her. But yeah, so a lot of the stuff is dated. A lot of the stuff uh, we've seen before. It's like, you know, introducing somebody to Bob Dylan, like his early work. And you say, well, what's so special about this Bob Dylan guy? He's just like a folk artist without realizing how revolutionary it was at the time, what he was doing, what he was saying, because there have been so many impersonators. So that's what I found to be challenging in going back. And, you know, Lauren himself has said season one is not 
It's his most special season, but it's not the funniest season. And I think we actually have a, a sound clip on that. Yes, this is uh, Lorne Michaels, executive producer of SNL, years later in an interview with Charlie Rose talking about that first season. We had no idea how long 90 minutes was when we first started, and the fact that we had to fill it every week. And also, in those days, they they thought we would just go every week. Was it more fun those days for you? I think for me it was more fun, not more fun, because I I really like it more now. Why? Why? Because I think it's better now. I think it's probably um, reaches a... uh, it's more popular now. Um, there's nothing... The period when you're starting and when everything is uphill and when you can't believe that you're doing this or that you, you that people have given you the freedom to do this mm. is exhilarating. And I think that the first year will always be, uh, uh, you know, is for me that, yeah. that, that championship season. The other thing I, I think I'll point out here is our advantage in evaluating these seasons one by one is that people who who aren't doing it quite in the way we are perhaps are, are merging the seasons together right and we have the ability to to very clearly delineate them apart for example people say season one's the best uh if people say that maybe they're thinking oh that's the season with the blues brothers and the coneheads and all these <laughs> yeah. great things that we love about that initial cast and no those things weren't here at all there are only a handful of sort of recognizable, repeatable characters through this first season. You mentioned Landshark, uh, Samurai, Emily Latella at Weekend Update. So there there are a few of them, but a lot of those, King Tut, a lot of those things wouldn't come until season two, three, four. And so the way we're doing this and watching season by season, our our brain can sort of draw this bright line between seasons and say, okay, here's where this changed or here's where this character came in. And this is an important shift in season X. We do have that advantage of then going back with with the advantage of time on our side. I would uh, mention one other thing is just in in terms of the way that we watch SNL old old, uh, episodes now. Where you can sit down and watch five of them at a time, or you know, ten of them at a time. You can binge watch them. You know, back in the day, you would watch an episode, then you'd go to work, you'd go, you know, make your your toaster ovens in the factory, and then a week later, you'd come back and be like, "I'm ready to unwind and hear Chevy Chase say the same joke on Weekend Update every week." <laughs> um, when we watch them now <laughs> uh, and we bang out four in a row, it's like, oh, God, this joke again, because <laughs> because I just I just literally saw him make fun of somebody doing a, a you know, a commentary on Weekend Update uh, behind their back. I just saw this like an hour ago. Right. So it isn't the spread out, um, you know, experience that, that you had at the time, which which I think made it more popular. All right, so you mentioned Weekend Update, Christian, and yes. I, I guess the host of Weekend Update is Chevy Chase. And one of the big stories through season one is Chevy Chase. His, I don't know if I want to say domination, but he's the breakout star of the show. And he's also a guy who caused some internal strife among the cast members for a couple of reasons. One is he was the breakout star and others, more most uh, importantly, John Belushi thought he should be the breakout star of the show. He got the, 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 the covers of the magazines. He got to say his name each week. He did the fall each week, the Pratt fall each week to begin the show. And he was also paid a lot more than everybody else on the show because he was both a writer, he had a writer's contract, 
and he was a performer, although he steadfastly refused to sign a performer's contract at any time, which was advantageous for him because it allowed him to leave earlier than others could have left uh, and go do movies. But he was still being paid more than everybody else on that cast, and he was becoming most famous. And he hadn't, uh, you know, he's Chevy Chase and, and you're not. And he would rub some people the wrong way behind the scenes. So Chevy Chase, SNL's success in season one perhaps doesn't happen without Chevy Chase. Yet there was a little bit of consternation about the fact it was happening because of him. Right. And you don't have to take our word for it. Here's some, uh, here's some commentary by some of the people that were on the show at the time. Yep, here's Jane Curtin. Chevy certainly was easy on the eye back then. And uh, he was also... Full of himself, you know. He he was he could present himself in a way that was funny and and uh, accessible to a certain degree. And you know, he, when he entered the room, the room changed, and so he had that he had that ability. So it made sense that he would be the face. But then the face got a little big. <laughs> it became this really big face, which ticked a lot of people off because it was um, you know John wanted to be the face and other people wanted to be the face and give us a chance to be the face and it was difficult for them so it was tense when that happened so yeah he was uh according to all reports heavily on cocaine at the time um which made him probably feel indestructible uh and he really rubbed people the, the wrong way and they were jealous of the fact that, uh, you know, I was I used the word dominate because on screen he was he was on all the time. He got to say his name on Weekend Update, which is why he rose to such prominence uh, amongst the cast members. Uh, you know, he O'Donohue and Lorne kind of formed a triumvirate mm-hmm. uh, of writers that a lot of people on the show uh, were jealous of because they were getting so much stuff on the air. His ego was uh, was such that uh, Lauren would later say, you know, they'd sit down to write a sketch and Chase would just would just write in like in quotes, me being funny (laughs) on the note card and then just pin it up on the board. And that would be the sketch. (laughs) I want to I want to say something very quickly, which is it is not exactly undeserved, meaning Chevy was telegenic. He was good looking. He was confident. He was, if you go back and look at some of the screen tests before the show started, he was by far the cast member most comfortable on screen. He looked like he knew what he was doing. He was an excellent writer early on. You mentioned it. he and Lorne and Michael O'Donohue, uh, but, but Chevy and Lorne together wrote a lot of the stuff in the first part of the first season of SNL. And so, and he was funny. Right. There's a lot of weekend up there that, that works really well. And people remember those jokes and those those catchphrases and the things he would do on weekend update. It is not as if he sort of back assed himself into being a star. He was very good on the show. Right. Just because he was a, a coke addled narcissist doesn't mean he wasn't right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And again, this is this is the beauty of SNL is because as this all this stuff is happening behind the scenes, they're able to write it into the show. There's there's a point at which uh, the, the cold open is about how Belushi is jealous of uh, of che- Chevy and che- Chevy actually won an Emmy. Uh, in the middle of the season, <laughs> right, of the entire of the entire cast, he wins an Emmy and he comes back. Uh, 
and they write a sketch about how how Belushi is jealous of him and pushes him off the stage, and he does his he does his fall. Garrett Morris being uh, has a voodoo doll where he sticks pins in Chevy's back because he's he's uh, jealous of him getting the pratfall each and every week. But yeah, on a on a normal show, you wouldn't be able to write that stuff into the show. You would write the show for a season, everybody would do it, and then leave for the summer. But on SNL, as it's being written every week, you can take kind of the internal strife and drama that's going on behind the scenes, and uh, and write it into the show and really get a feeling of what's happening with these people as it's going on and get to, get to know them a little bit better. As we talk Chevy Chase, it's probably an appropriate time to discuss Weekend Update, a feature of the show that has lasted all of these years, although uh, with different names, sometimes in the in the early 1980s. But this is a segment for the show that was, that was planned in advance. It's a segment that gave Chippy Chase the ability to say his name each and every week, which made him uh, a star. But it does. It didn't start with SNL, though. That, that There's a little bit of a backstory to how Weekend Update came to be. Right. So in the early 1970s, um, an editor at National Lampoon magazine named Henry Beard uh, began a column called News on the March. And in this, he he did a weekly bit on news that was happening uh, during that week, just kind of observational stuff about, uh, uh, you know, about national news stories. When National Lampoon started the stage show, Chevy Chase started doing this fake newscast using a lot of the same ideas that were in the magazine in, in News on the March. And then, of course, Chevy Chase moves to SNL in 1975 and takes the bit with him. Uh, setting the stage for Weekend Update from then on. It was created by by Chevy and Herb Sargent. The idea was to write it at the last possible minute to be able to get as much current news in um, to make it as flexible as possible and as topical as possible. Sometimes literally the last minute. Ellen Zweibel, who's a writer for the show, tells a story of at least two episodes where he is sitting below the weekend update desk and typing or writing, probably writing, not typing. You'd hear that, but writing out jokes for Chevy Chase as weekend update is actually happening. <laughs> yeah. You know, the writers took great pride in getting jokes on update about an event that just happened. So uh, in terms of the hierarchy of jokes, if you were able to get something that is like fresh off the, off the newswire, then uh, then you were considered uh, you got some status for that. So, but yeah, for for season one, uh, weekend update became over the over the episodes. There were all, all the kind of the same bits. He would start out on the phone uh, having some lewd conversation with with someone, and then <laughs> and he surprised get, that the camera was on him. Get looter and looter as the season would go on. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it's episode four where he does the first uh, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. He is remembered for that catchphrase, but this is one of the things that we're talking about, why we go back and watch these episodes. Because I'm sure for the next 50 years, people walked up to Chevy Chase and said, hey, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. But he only did that a couple of times. He, he switched it up. Um, here's some of his other catchphrases that he used at the beginning of Weekend Update. Um, I'm Chevy Chase and you're merely a statistic. I'm Chevy Chase and you are nothing. I am Chevy Chase and you can't. <laughs> Good evening, I'm not. I'm Chevy Chase and you're touching yourself. I'm Chevy Chase and so are you. 
I'm Chevy Chase and you're glad to see me. <laughs> so so he did switch it up, but it's just that I'm Chevy Chase and you're not that that ended up being uh, kind of the cultural touchstone um, that everybody remembers. And as we'll discuss later, he actually got Gerald Ford to, <laughs> to say it on the air. Uh, to say I'm Gerald Ford and you're not. So, But as um, you said, he maybe did that. I didn't count, but f- it's not more than four or five times, right? I don't think it's more than four or five times that he says, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. And yet that line has, has lived for 40 plus years now. Right. Why did none of the other, none of the other uh, <laughs> lines that he wrote live on? So we get an update during uh, the first season gives us some of the most recognizable bits. We have Chevy Chase, uh, you know, somebody will come on and do commentary and he will make faces behind their back, um, which was entertaining the first maybe three times he did it. <laughs> Emily Latella, of course, makes her uh, she was on a she was on a sketch with Jane Curtin, I believe. Yes. Looks when, at books. When, looks at books. And they tried they took Emily Latella for a spin on there and then she became uh, a regular on Weekend Update. To the point where every week it was just Latella after Latella after Latella. Uh, she basically takes over Weekend Update, ha- you know, halfway through the season, um, and adds little touches where she starts calling him Cheddar Cheese. <laughs> for, for those who don't know Emily Latella, it is the bit where Gilda Radner comes on and gives a very passionate account of some uh, opinion on some news story, and then. Chevy tells her you've misheard <laughs> uh, what you're giving your opinion on. And then she says, well, never mind. Right. It's not. She's very upset about the Eagle Rights Amendment. And Chevy <laughs> has to tell her, uh, no, no, no. It's the Equal Rights Amendment. Right. And then you get. I'm all for Eagles, but I don't want to sit next to one on a bus. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I will say I love Emily Latella. It is actually one of the Weekend Update features from season one that I did not get tired of because so much of my dad humor with the kids involves me intentionally mishearing things that they are saying. I get Emily Latella and, and there is, it didn't go too long, right? I mean, her bits didn't go four minutes. They were 90 seconds, maybe 90 seconds in which she confuses the topic. And there's some creative writing that has to, that is involved there in which she, like you said, she doesn't want an eagle sitting next to her on a bus. So each of those things she misunderstands, there's got to be this little backstory about how she understands it being a bad thing that she wants to speak out against. So I really liked essentially all of those Emily Latella bits on, on Weekend Update. We started to get the bits from uh, Belushi where he like starts in a slow burn and then ends up uh, yelling and screaming uh, at the end. I believe the first one was about uh, songs that incorporate weather into the title, uh, something to that effect. Oh, you've got um, the uh, courtroom sketches. Uh, oh, yes. As he's doing, a lot of times as he's doing the report with his nose, holding his nose, uh, there are really bad sketches or a courtroom scene or later on in the season, they would have just the stock footage of things happening, not actual footage of what he's talking about. Um, Lorraine Newman becomes a weekend update correspondent. So she is in various locations, including the hotel that I'm not going to remember. 
the, 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 the Blaine Hotel? Yeah, yeah, the Blaine Hotel, uh, where all the crime is happening in, in New York City and where later on Don Pardo tells us where SNL's <laughs> guests stay uh, during the course of the week, which is kind of a nice bit. But Lorraine, great Newman, payoff. Yeah, Lorraine Newman becomes sort of the official weekend update correspondent from various locations across the country as she's green screened in, of course. But and the, then, of course, at the end, uh, yeah. this started off early, the news for the deaf. <laughs> yeah, news for the hard of hearing. This is something that I'm Chevy sorry. wrote to help Garrett Morris get on the show uh, because Garrett is the person in the box who is shouting Chevy Chase's, repeating Chevy Chase's top story, shouting very loudly as it is news for the hard of hearing. And it became essentially a weekend thing, the very last or weekly thing, the very last thing on Weekend Update was this news for the hard of hearing involving Garrett Morris. Right. And at some point, they started to branch that out. There's like news for the wet or yeah. something, where Zweibel's in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's Weekend Update. And obviously, work to the point where it is still going strong. And I would say the jokes on Weekend Update not in, don't really hit all that often. Uh, in the season. And again, a lot of it is because a lot of the, the, you know, the subject matter is so 1975 and 1976 that it's hard to really get get a feel of how fresh it was at the time. But yeah, a lot of it is just kind of commenting on photos that are up on the screen um, that they probably, you know, got through the AP wire or whatever. And and the pace is, the pace is so fast at the start of the season. There was, there's no time to breathe between jokes. But at the start of the year, it was only three, four minutes long. And eventually, because it became popular, it stretched out to, you know, eight minutes, nine minutes with a fake commercial break in the middle. And so you could pace it a little bit better as the show went along. But this is one Weekend Update is one of the places in which SNL or at that point NBC's Saturday Night was able to comment on the major news stories of the year, 1975 and 1976. Uh, clearly, the presidential primary, uh, both on both sides, both Republican and Democrat, uh, are, are key topics of conversation a- on Weekend Update and elsewhere on the show. But Christian, as we said in our previous episode, this was a show designed to be, you know, in the moment and of the moment. And, and to that end, they are consistently commenting on things or pop culture that is in the news. Right. A lot of jokes about uh, Ronald Reagan's hair coloring. <laughs> Um, it takes about halfway through the season where, uh, we start to get jokes about Jimmy Carter, um, some unflattering, uh, jokes about Jimmy Carter being from Georgia, including, uh, now he has more delegates than teeth. Um, so it's interesting, you know, how the, the first impressions, uh, of, of politicians that went on to, uh, you know, stardom first started on SNL, you know, some George Wallace jokes, Yes, says uh, George Wallace. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I don't judge a man by the color of his skin. I judge him about whether or how well I can see him in the dark. So some pretty biting humor there. But uh, yeah. So, so what were some of the other big news stories that were that were kind of tackled on SNL or on uh, Weekend Update at the time? Well, certainly, as you mentioned, I mean Gerald Ford, Gerald Ford's campaign. Gerald yes, Ford um, yeah. is a klutz. Gerald Ford uh, is a scatterbrain. This is how the show attempted to play Ford. And we didn't mention this when we talked about Chevy Chase, but another reason why Chevy Chase broke out is because he was 
doing Gerald Ford for SNL. And as we say, doing Gerald Ford, we made it in the loosest possible way because Chevy Chase made no attempt to sound like Gerald Ford. He made no attempt to look like Gerald Ford. He merely played him as a stumble bum in, in sketch after sketch and, and portrayed him as a stumble bum in the Weekend Update jokes. One of my favorite Weekend Update jokes from the season is um, Chase to camera, very, very serious deadpan. Look, we, uh, we here at Weekend Update appreciate the, uh, the seriousness and the responsibility of the president's office and the importance of the White House. We apologize for all our past jokes about Gerald Ford and promise to be more sensitive in the future. Beat. An unidentified man fell out to the White House balcony today, you know, <laughs> clearly joking about <laughs> Gerald Ford without saying Gerald Ford's name. So that that was a, a huge thing through uh, the course of the first season was the way they went after Gerald Ford. And it also leads to one of the hosts for this season. And this is one of the interesting stories about how SNL begins to enter the social consciousness. So it was happening throughout the season. This is how you end up with Ron Nesson hosting season seven. I'm sorry, <laughs> season one, episode 17 of Saturday Night. Ron Nesson is President Gerald Ford's press secretary. And he watches the show. And there's a, a sketch, I don't recall, it might be episode eight, I can't recall which, which one, but it's early in the season, Operation Stumblebum, where, oh, it's the Buck Henry episode, so it's episode 10, where Buck Henry playing Ron Nesson says, we've, we've figured out a way to make sure that you look like a normal person and not a guy who is, is, is a klutz. Uh, every time you do something wrong... I and the Secret Service will do the same thing to make it look like a comet occurrence. So, you know, he rips his shirt and everyone rips their shirt and he throws paper in the air and everyone throws paper in the air. It's actually, uh, A, one of the lengthiest sketches of this first year, about eight, nine minutes, and also one of the better Ford sketches in this first season. So Nesson sees this Operation Stumblebum sketch and he is thinking about ways to sort of co-op the show's humor to say, hey... We understand what you're doing. You're a comedy show. We're the president. You make fun of us. This is the power structure, but we can take it and, you know, we can wink and nod with you and it's, it's all right. So Ron Nesson actually runs into Al Franken at a rally a few weeks after that show. And Franken, I think this is the way the story goes, Franken makes an offer and says, you know, you should come host the show. Thinking he'd, he'd say no, clearly. And Nesson says, yes. Nesson says, yes, I'd love to host SNL. Now, he's got to go back to the White House and clear it and get the permission of the president and everyone involved. But he does. And so Nesson hosts episode 17 of the season. This is the one that is uh, involved. They, they go to the White House and get Gerald Ford to record a few things. They get him to record live from New York at Saturday night. They get him to record saying, uh, I'm Gerald Ford and you're not. And Lorne Michaels tells a story. They went to the White House to record Gerald Ford saying these things. And they set up the cameras and they mic him up and he does it. And as he's walking away, and Michael said, we couldn't tell the story, obviously, at the time. As he's walking away, he forgets to unhook his microphone. And so he takes down the camera. Like, it, it, it is Gerald Ford being the SNL Gerald Ford in front of everyone on the show. So Ford's on the show doing these little cut-ins and Nesson comes in and host the show. And the worry was that they would be, they would savage Ford during the show, right? They would take the opportunity to have Nesson on to absolutely savage Ford and just go after him. And they went the other way. What everyone at SNL did when Nesson hosted the show was to be as absolutely disgusting, 
tawdry, risque as possible. And Knowing that Gerald Ford was going to have to watch this show. Right, right. And so <laughs> they do this uh, uh, this fake commercial for, uh, uh, well, it's first for Flucker's Jam, Smuckers. <laughs> and the, the, the joke is, it's a weird name. It must be good. If we can name our jam something this bad, the jam must be fantastic. So then they go through these other iterations. Uh, uh, three or four cast members come on and say, no, 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 no this one's better. Nose hair. Nose hair jam. This is really good jam. And then you've got like death camp and dog vomit and monkey pus. And by the end, you get to painful rectal itch jam. If it's think of how good this jam is, if we can name it painful rectal itch. And the the punchline is is uh, Garrett Morse coming out and saying, no, this is the worst one. And he doesn't even say it. It's he just shows the name to people and they react as if something horrific has happened. And so, you know, the jam's so good, we can't say its name on TV. So you, you have that. You have um, Belushi doing a cut on the, 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 the Today's Army, the new army with drug paraphernalia on camera. You have a, a, a fake commercial for Autumn Fizz Carbonated Douche. You have a home movie in which uh, people are urinating in a bathroom while singing. You've got this very famous sketch involving the Supreme Court, which comes into the bedroom where Chevy Chase and Jane Curtin are having amorous activities. And the Supreme Court has to weigh in as as to whether or not they can do those things they're doing underneath the covers. There's a few other things there, too, but they just go all out to make it the raunchiest, dirtiest show they possibly could have had. Oh, uh, Emily Latella is talking about presidential erections, not presidential elections. And so you, you have all of this taking place on a Nesset episode. And Nesson kind of thinks it went well. And to be fair, I don't think he did like a poor job. It was a he did a pretty okay job as a press secretary hosting SNL. And the show itself is very good because everybody else ups their game because they know the president's watching and people are watching the sec- press secretary on this show. So Nesson gets back and the White House is apoplectic and he gets these nasty grams from Ford's kids. And, and it's just they think they, they're like, we thought your job was to serve the president, not yourself, to make the president look good. And look what you did on SNL. We have Dick Ebersol, who at that point was still involved with SNL. He would be promoted off the show uh, during the first season, talking about the impact, the effect of the Ron Nesson episode on the actual political environment. This is from the Television Academy Foundation interview. There are people to this day who think that he lost the Wyoming uh, primary two days later because of the stuff that went on in that show, because Nesson was in a show that had a very risque sketch about the Supreme Court defining um, what was, uh, oh God, not deviant sex, but something along those lines. And so it involved a couple in bed and all nine Supreme Court justices standing around the bed and pulling, you can't see it, but they're picking up the camera saying, no, no, that doesn't qualify. No, that kind of thing. And those things really ticked off the base. This only happens because the show became ingrained in the social conversation, became ingrained in pop culture. Nesson saw it. Nesson wanted to be a part of it. Nesson thought he could co-op their humor to help President Ford. In the end, the show got the last laugh by doing this raunchy, dirty sketch after sketch on the actual program itself. You covered everything I wanted to say about that. Um, <laughs> well, I taught, you know, I taught this sketch mm-hmm. in my class. Right. So I've uh, a little bit of uh, research on it. Should also mention that uh, the the first real uh, sketch in that show was Bathematic. Um, yeah, Super Bathematic 76. Yes, um, a, a, another classic. Ron Nesson 
that's what I was thinking as I was watching his uh, his monologue. Not that bad. Like, right. kind of has a little Harry Shearer vibe. <laughs> and the and the greatest comb over of the 1970s. Yeah, like, I have this in my notes. <laughs> Whatever happened to comb overs? Like, <laughs> up until kind of the mid-2000s, the comb over was the big thing. And then people just that's said, shaving oh, heads. Screw it. Yeah, that's right. Shave, it's, it's we're shaving going. the head. Because we all think we look like... Um, Oh, shoot. What's his name? The action star, Jason Statham. <laughs> yeah, right. But we don't. Not at all. Yeah. So that would be like if Wright's Priebus went to go host the show. Or right. Something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or Scaramucci uh, or somebody. Or, uh, Sean Spicer. Instead, they made fun of Sean Spicer on the show. <laughs> that's, the, that's a conversation for a season much, much longer in the future. So we, so we, we, yeah, we have some, some good stuff to get to and we're, we're running along here. So let me, let me just throw out a couple things, a couple you know, ideas that I jotted down. Yeah. How effective do you think the Muppets and the Brooks <laughs> Weiss films were? Well, this is, this is an area on which we disagree vehemently. So we go do. ahead. I, I, well, not on the Muppets. Cause we both think the Muppets were terrible. Uh, the exception being later in the year after it's clear that they're not working when they work that into the show and be like, I'm yeah. sorry, you were cut this week. Uh, and, and the Muppets don't have an office anymore because, you know, they're not working. And they actually incorporate, instead of having the Muppets stand alone, they incorporate the Muppets into some of the show. It's still not great, but at least they understand how they can maneuver them in inside the show. There's a great line from Michael o- O'Donohue because SNL writers had to write for the Muppets and they hated it, just, just hated it. They drew straws each week to see who had to write for the Muppets. And O'Donohue just flatly refused it. He said, I don't write for felt. That's how <laughs> there's, an, there's an effing thrown in the middle yeah. of, uh, of that as well. <laughs> but the, Ber- Bernie Burlstein, his point was that, look, the show would not have happened. There would not be, no, not be any SNL if they didn't, hadn't agreed to right. because put that, the Muppets in. That got them on, that got them credibility, right? It, it said, okay, we know what we're doing. We're going to have these set pieces. People can expect the Muppets to be on, but clearly at oh, some point. But when we talk about the Muppets, we're not talking about like Kermit and Fozzie. We're talking about kind of like the dark crystal-y type of, of uh, you know, kind of like just gross looking, you know, old Muppets. And I understand the whole idea of, you know, look, there's comedy based on contrasting styles. There's, South Park, where you have little children saying terrible things. And so this seems to be something like that, where it's like, hey, we have Muppets, but they're having sex on camera (laughs) or just off camera. (laughs) And it just did not work at all. It was so terrible. You know, Jim Jim Henson was always kind of a countercultural hippie and wanted to do more adult type of stuff like this. But it was just dreadful and did not work uh, at all. And I'm glad they they gave them the boot. Now we uh, do very dis- shortly, and we do disagree strangely on 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 either side about the other films. Yeah, Albert Brooks has films early in the season. Gary Weiss has films later in the season, and then the short clips that people are sending in. It's essentially the birth of America's funniest home videos, or really specifically the birth of America's funniest people. The spinoff of America's funniest videos, in which Dave Coulier hosted with Tony Katane. coming soon. By the way. <laughs> One year of America's Funniest People, where where Christian and I go back and watch every episode. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, they went on and said, hey, send us your short films. We want to show people how funny you are across the country. So, Well, America's Funniest Home Videos ended up just being people, like, throwing themselves off of, like, jungle gyms and stuff like that. This was actual right. – people forget that the show solicited, like, eight-millimeter films from people, from filmmakers at home yeah. and uh, and decided to show them – uh, on the air, and some of them actually aren't really all that bad. There's some stop motion stuff in there 
that's uh that's pretty decent. There's some pretty good ideas. And uh, you know, one of the one of the films that was sent in eventually was the first Mr. Bill film. Right. That uh became a, sta- a staple of the show and you could see it right in the it, right in the first show kind of how Mr. Bill gets tortured and became <laughs> kind of a national a national celebrity, so but the Brooks and Weiss film. So you give your take first. And we are, as you mentioned, uh, looking at the clock, we are going a little long, at least for our planned length for these episodes. But it is season one. We have to establish some things. So Albert Brooks does these films first in the first part of the season. Gary Weiss does these more sort of people on the street uh, um, uh, character sketches in the second half of the season. What do you think about the Brooks and Weiss films? Okay. I think the Brooks films are are dreadful. Um, I, I understand. <laughs> I understand Albert Brooks is a national celebrity at that point. Broadcast news, great, great film. Um, you give Albert Brooks, you know, two years to make a movie and he'll make a great movie. You give him like a week to make one and it's going to be rough. Like there's one of my notes after watching one of his movies is this does not... This does not reflect or represent entertainment in any way, <laughs> but <laughs> because they're they're just so sweaty, they're so, they're trying so hard. They're mostly joke free. It just feels like a guy who is kind of uh, convinced of his own genius, and that people will laugh at whatever whatever he puts on the on the screen. And uh, it just doesn't work. There's one that's 15 minutes long uh, that just goes on forever. It's like, gosh, how many sketches? you know, classic sketches could have, could have run during this time. So not a fan of the Brooks Brooks films at all. I think he's at least 50, 50 success rate on the films. I I'm a giant Albert Brooks fan. And so that's my bias. As I begin, I, I cede to you that not all of them work very well. The one where he's sick is it's bad. It's bad. Uh, the 15 minute one I think is actually good. It is too long. I, it's too long, but there are some really good jokes in which Albert Brooks, uh, he's always wanted to perform heart surgery, and so he does with the help of, of other doctors and surgeons. It's a good setup, and I think it, it's pretty good. The one where he gives you the potential NBC midseason replacements, uh, also very, very funny, I think. So I think the Brooks films, I think much like the Muppets, it's something that they thought they were going to need through the season, A, to give the show a bit of credibility, and B, that they had something they could count on. Right. They didn't know how it was going to go week to week, writing these sketches and, and figuring out how the pieces would fit, to put, would fit together. So having the Brooks films was a, was a crutch they could lean on. They realized at some point they didn't need them. They didn't need them certainly as long as Brooks was making them. There was a big fight. There were big fights between Lorne and Brooks because they were on opposite coasts. Albert Brooks was out in L.A. and Lorne was in New York and they were working in different worlds. And that, you know, if there's one thing we can say about SNL, Christian, it's that it's a little insular. And if you're not inside 30 Rock, you don't understand. And and Albert Brooks was not inside 30 Rock. And they would fight about length. They would fight about cost. Brooks was upset that they weren't pr- featured more prominently. Lorne was upset because they were all coming in far too long and far too expensive. And there was a real bad blood between the two of them for a long, long, long time. But I think the Brooks films are pretty good. I don't have a lot of time for the Gary Weiss films. <laughs> the, the crowd seemed to love them when they were introduced on the show, giving big applause. And it, I think there are a few that work, 
but most of them are just sort of these slice of life vignettes. I do like, I like the one with, with Buck Henry in the uh, toilet seat store in which he's talking yeah. to people about their toilet seats and keeps asking them, why did your old one break? That's my favorite part. I think of any Weiss film is when Buck Henry asks people shopping for toilet seats, why did your old, old toilet seat break? Very funny. But by and large, people talking about their pets or people petting their dogs, it didn't do it for me. The Weiss films are not funny per se, but like you said, they're little slice of life vignettes of kind of New York life, which I really enjoyed. Um, you know, there's the HBO show How To with John Wilson, where he just kind of walks around New York with a camera and finds like all of these like oddities of of living in New York. And this is kind of the same thing where he just, you know, there's a, there's one where he talks to the owner of a of a joke shop, an old woman that owns like a you know, like a joke shop place. Uh, I think that's pretty interesting where he talks to people about their dogs, where he talks to, um, there's a, there's a bit about um, the, the garbage in New York, people who pick up the garbage and the bodies they find and, and things like that. There are some that don't work. There's five minutes of Raquel Welch dancing, which I have no idea why that exists or who thought that was a good idea. But for the most part, I, I, they're not laugh out loud funny, but they are, they're just like a little glimpse into the lives of odd people. Um, one of them is, uh, was one of the gay characters in Andy Warhol's movies where mm-hmm. he just talks about his dog for, for a few minutes. I, I just kind of think that's it's interesting and it's winning to me. So uh, not necessarily funny, but my life is better for having watched it. <laughs> uh, something that I was surprised I hated, and I think I do want to use the word hate here, so much was essentially all of the stand-up comedians on this season. Even the hosts, even Pryor, even Richard Klein, even, um, I'm I'm forgetting someone, but everyone doing, Billy Crystal, everybody doing stand-up, everybody doing comedy this season they're all doing one man shows. They're all doing one woman experiences. And it's terrible. I mean, Richard Pryor's stand up on the Pryor show, which you like more than I do. Mm-hmm. You just get you get Richard Pryor pretending to be drunk. And then you get Richard Pryor pretending to be on acid. And then you get Richard Pryor pretending to be a hobo. Like all of, there's no there's no there there. There's no joke there. It's Richard Pryor just pretending to be in an inebriated state, which he probably had a lot of experience. Let's be frank about that. None of that worked. The Klein stand-up was bad. Billy Crystal's one-man thing was awful, where he meets an old boxing friend. Oh, Denny, God. Denny Dillon, so who would later be an SLL cast member, does this uh, this Catholic uh, nun uh, music thing, which is, which is horrible. What was happening with comedy in 75 and 76 that the show itself understood how to make people laugh, but the actual comedians they brought on were so unsuccessful, at least for me. Yeah, there had to be a real change in comedy around that time um, where people started to actually start telling jokes. I don't know what stand-up changed the game uh, for good. Maybe it was Steve Martin uh, around that time. But yeah, the, like the one-man, the one one-woman uh, shows, like Lily Tomlin had, had a long piece... Although, you know, basically. although Lily Tomlin had perhaps my favorite joke from a stand-up routine in the season, which is she, she sort of has this, takes this notebook out and says things she she's written, one-liners she's written since she's been in New York. And she said, New York is always knowing where your purse is. 
<laughs> I laughed at that. I like that. So, and why do the hosts think they can sing? A lot of the hosts just start singing. Raquel Welch sings a song. Uh, Elliot Gould sings a song. Uh, doesn't doesn't Peter Boyle sing a song? I believe. Like, are, yes, he does. He, my funny. What Valentine. are these people doing singing? Stop with the singing. Do your <laughs> acting and and stand up. I don't. I don't get it. Madeline Kahn, I think, might sing too, but she's. I'm actually sure she does. Singer. Actually, I think she sings twice. Uh, there's at least a show where the host sings yeah. twice. <laughs> so we just wanted to get a quick burn through a couple of the common themes on the show. There seems to be a a theme where the male cast members all want to have sex with the female hosts, um, which is really weird. Uh, at the end of the Raquel Welch uh, episode, I think Chevy convinces Raquel Welch to take her shirt off. Um, so I guess we know who wrote that sketch, <laughs> but it does go the other way because, uh, Gilda Radner tries to marry and eventually does marry Elliot Gould during the course <laughs> yes. of the show. So both ways. Right. There are a few sketches where the female cast members are like in awe of the male cast members. I'm sure those are written by the male cast members. <laughs> um, there are themes that, that, uh, come up like Jane Curtin, starts as a talk show host. I think the first one she does is where John Belushi is on her talk show and pretends to have gotten his arm bit off by yes. a shark. Yeah. But they find out he actually has an arm. He just wanted to be on the show. Dan Aykroyd came on. Uh, he, he's really good at doing the salesman, the fake commercial uh, type of things. So those are just some of the, some of the general themes that you, you start to get from season one. And something that I think we'll just touch on briefly is the success or lack thereof for the show, at least at the, at the beginning of the season. NBC's Saturday night was replacing Johnny Carson reruns that night. We talked about that in our first episode, and it was not cleared across the country. Not, not every NBC affiliate was airing this program. In fact, at one point, it's only about two thirds, like 145 of 220 NBC affiliates were airing the show. And early in the season, the ratings weren't great. We, we mentioned this as a manifest destiny hit. Lorne believed in it so much, he made his cast believe in the show. And they just, they knew it was going to be successful. Early on, it, it was not. I mean, it was getting like 22 share. And now that would be massive. But back then, you had three options. So if you have a 22 share, that means the other two networks have... Uh, almost an 80 share. <laughs> so not great. <laughs> but the one thing the show had going for it, even very, very early on, was that they were successful in marketing this to an extremely young audience. Three quarters of the viewers for SNL early in season one were between the ages of 18 and 49, the highest percentage for any show anywhere on television. So Lawrence said he wanted to do a, a, a show for the TV generation. He wanted to do a show for the youth. He was reaching that audience successfully early on, and it did get that sort of young, hip reputation. Ratings were kind of stagnant for a while until the show won the Emmys late in season one. After they win the Emmys, uh, ratings bump up and stay that way into season two, and then you see the real juggernaut in kind of season three and season four in terms of where the ratings would be big. But just being where they were by the end of the season was enough to obviously guarantee a season two. And they got pressed during the year. You know, Chevy Chase was on the cover of magazines. People were talking about this show in a way, in a very small way. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I will. It's sort of the, the Twitter effect, right? Twitter 
what Twitter talks about can be a very small part of the audience, but they can blow it up to a much bigger, <laughs> make it a bigger deal than perhaps yeah. it really is. Yeah. So SNL was reaching the right people, the young people, the people who were writing some of these for the hip publications that others were also reading. They were reaching the people who were influencers, and that was important to the growth of the show early on. Writer Alan Dwybell talks with the Television Academy Foundation about what that first year was like when they began to realize there was some momentum. When did SNL become a hit? And it happened fairly quickly in terms of recognition. It got to a point where early in the first season or midway through the first season, um, Belushi and Gilda didn't take subways anymore. You know, um, and that's not because they were above it. It was because um, people would start to recognize them and they felt safer in a cab. So it's time to move on to the fun part of the show. We're actually well, we hope tell so. You. We'll, th- we'll find out. We think it's going to be the fun part of the show. <laughs> well, this is the most fun part for me. because We get to actually uh, recommend stuff to people that uh, they may know about, they may not know about. So uh, we'll see. Um, we're going to start out with our first award. We're going to hand out some awards here to uh, things in different categories. First award, most valuable, most valuable performer. Who was uh, who owned the show for the first season? Yeah, see how we did that? It's still MVP, most yes. valuable performer. That's that's <laughs> the thought that we put into designing this program. It's, it's unbelievable. Wasn't that special? 50 years of SNL. We take every detail seriously. All right, so <laughs> most valuable performer. And I, I, I like your definition, which I don't have at my fingertips, uh, Christian, about what this means. Because this is the old baseball argument. Do you mean the best player or the one most valuable to his team? All right, your definition is good. And essentially you say... This is the person who owns the season, right? Who, where does the season revolve around? Who's the person that makes it his own sort of thing? I think that's the best way to d- decide or determine what we mean by most valuable performer. And, and so, you can own the show by just being kind of the, kind of the glue guy, like sure. being the guy who's in all the sketches, who get, keeps everything moving. You don't have to be you know, a superstar. You just have to make sure everything... Uh, there are some seasons where I'm sure Keenan Thompson is probably the MVP, uh, even though he doesn't have any, you know, any of the big tentpole uh, roles. <laughs> right. Because he's, he's so great. Anyway, so go on. But, but for season one, I don't think, maybe you'll argue with me. We, uh, By the way, we should say these are all surprises to each of us. So we did not right. share, we do, we're not sharing these award <laughs> lists before we get to the show, which could be really great and it could be really terrible. We're going to find out together. The same thing. That's right. <laughs> I think we're going to have the same MVP for season one because the most valuable performer for season one clearly is Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase is the face of the show. Chevy Chase does every live from New York except for one. Chevy Chase takes the pratfalls. Chevy Chase plays Gerald Ford. Chevy Chase hosts Weekend Update. Chevy Chase is the land shark. Chevy Chase writes. Chevy Chase performs. Chevy Chase is best friends with the executive producer, Lorne Michaels. Chevy Chase is the most comfortable on camera. Chevy Chase imbues the show with his don't care attitude, right? We're going to do this. This is our thing. Like it or not, this is who we are. I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. He's the face of the show. He's the handsome guy. He's on the covers. He's the guy that helps the show break out. I don't think there can be any real disagreement, honestly, that Chevy Chase is the most valuable performer in season one. Sadly, you are correct. There, there can be no other pick than, uh, than Chevy Chase. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he does own the show from from beginning to end, from the first live from New York at Saturday night. 
But this is the irony of Chevy Chase. It's that he's so good that he's too good for the show and then leaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, had he not been as good, then maybe he would have stayed. And, you know, in subsequent interviews, he's always, he's always said that uh, he really regretted, he really regretted leaving. Although he left to do movies and made tons of tons yes. of money, I don't know why he would really have regretted leaving. The, um, the other thing I'll mention about Chevy, and this would be a critique of his, Roger Ebert was especially tough on Chevy in his movie career because, but I think it's another reason why he was so successful and, and, and such a breakout guy from this season is Chevy Chase is always Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase doesn't try to change himself to play Gerald Ford. He doesn't try to change himself to play Ronald Reagan. He doesn't really become a, a character on the sketches. He does a few music numbers in which he's essentially just Chevy Chase singing. Chevy Chase is always Chevy Chase. But that <laughs> also gives him a hook that he's not disappearing into characters all the time. And I think it's one of the reasons, too, why he's such a big deal in this first year. Yep. Agreed. And, boy, if you watch some interviews, uh, recent interviews of Chevy Chase, they are really sad and depressing because he is... A man that has some demons, uh, let's put it that way, and he's just grown more and more difficult to work with, um, especially the way he kind of tanked the show community uh, at the time. Um, Joel McHale does interviews where he just he has nothing but terrible things to say about him. So you got to have to separate the art from the person. Yep. Um, yep. And it's just kind of sad the way he just... You know, in 1975, he's this fit, tall, good-looking guy, and now he's in his 80s, and he's, you know, just kind of a rotund, cranky old man who never answers a question seriously, and I don't know. It's kind of depressing to see. On that Which note, is why I'm never going to age. That's right. On that note, let's move to something else that's some Speaking uh, depressing, of depressing. <laughs> which is, uh, we'll also name for you our least valuable performer. It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean the worst. Some years it might mean the worst. But who is the least essential to how the show operates during the course of a single year? Uh, During the first years, heck, the first 20 years, it might be tough because it's such a small cast. Down the road, as we get to deeper into wasn't that special, this might be a little bit tougher because there are so many options. People who only get on the show once or twice a night. But for this first year, season one, Christian, your least valuable performer of the year. Oh, this is so hard to do because it's, you know, we're going to get some letters on this. I suspect you and I are going to have different ones on this. For me, it is Curtain. Oh, um, no. Are you? Oh, no. It You're is kidding. Curtain. Oh. She is, she's good, but kind of one note. Like she does the, she does the thing where she interviews people on talk shows. Uh, she doesn't have any real breakout characters. She's just kind of she she essentially plays the straight woman in most of these uh, in most of these sketches. Uh, She's she's good. And I'm going to have a lot. Trust me, I'm going to have a lot of great things to say about her in subsequent seasons. I just think if she was not on the cast this year, it wouldn't have been all the worse. I think she's just not she doesn't rise to the level of everybody else. She has some she has some some good sketches. Don't get me wrong. They all do. I just think. yeah, I just think everybody kind of outshone her this year. Well, I seriously disagree with that. I, I think Jane <laughs> Curtin is very important to season one. Uh, yes, she she plays that talk show host role well, and they go back to it over and over again. She often plays sort of the mom-wife kind of character in a few sketches. 
There are a few places in which she plays against type, though, which is really fun and interesting. And she's able to do some things that Gilda can't. Uh, Gilda is certainly, I don't think she quite breaks out here in season one, but she does become more prominent as the season goes along and has some more direct-to-camera type moments. But I think, uh, man, I, I think Jane is pretty darn important to season one and how they're able to make some of these sketches work. So I, I disagree. Disagree. I do really enjoy the uh, the sketch where she plays against type and where it's uh, uh, Gilda is a housewife yes. who calls uh, <laughs> an ad out of the village voice for a house cleaner. Yes, for a house cleaner. And it's S&M house cleaning and she, or it's just called S&M and she thinks it means sweeping and mopping. <laughs> Uh, when in fact Jane Curtin shows up as a dominatrix yes. and hilarity ensues. Scum! <laughs> no wonder your French fries taste greasy, your freezer wrap doesn't cling, and your cat food doesn't thunk a thunk. Oh, Mrs. <laughs> please, 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 you've gotta you've gotta teach me, really. Just teach me to be just like you, oh please. You miserable insect. <laughs> That's probably Curtin's best uh Best bit. Disagree. Disagree. Jane Curtin, very important. Uh, okay, so well, my, then you've got to pick somebody. I do. My least valuable performer for season one is Lorraine Newman. <sighs> I think she gets lost in the wash. And there's a couple of stories in that Hill Weingrad book about how she is, she's only 22 and she sort of gets run over in the, the writer's room uh, throughout the course of the season. What do you remember from Lorraine in season one, I remember her being the weekend update correspondent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember her trying to sell this sort of Valley girl, Sherry character a couple of times, uh, ineffectively. Mm-hmm. And I remember her, perhaps her most memorable role is playing in the exorcist too, the Richard Pryor episode where she mm-hmm. is, uh, she's in bed and, and vomiting pea soup and doing the exorcist type things. I don't remember a lot of other things that she does and a lot of things that Lorraine's involved with. She's like, she's second female in this, in the sketch, right? She's not the lead female. She's the, she's the second female in the sketch. So I, I, uh, you know, I think there's some things like Garrett Morris does in season one that it's gotta be Garrett, right? I mean, Garrett, uh, is important in a few ways, not as prominent as perhaps he would have liked, but Lorraine, I don't know that she has any substantial hook in season one. And I think she sort of gets lost in the mix a lot of weeks. I knew you were going to pick Lorraine, first of all. So <laughs> I enjoyed her uh, her weekend update correspondent bits. I like the voice that she does. It's kind of spot on for... for reporter uh, voice. Yeah. Reporter voice. She plays Squeaky Fromm uh, in, a, in a sketch. Uh I'm blanking. She she see? she has some, some bits. <laughs> What's that? I said see. <laughs> you can't think of anything. I enjoyed Lorraine Newman's work this season. <laughs> Let's put it that way. All right. Okay. Best sketch. What you got? Best sketch. We got to go best overall sketch of this season. Yes. So I thought of a couple. Um, and I, if I'm if I'm going to steal yours, I apologize. I'll try to gloss over some of these quickly. Um, okay. So we don't spend too much time on. I, I think. Samurai Deli, which is the second Samurai sketch. It's uh, with Buck Henry. It's the one that Buck actually suggested they bring it back a second mm. time. That is, I think, the best Samurai sketch of the season. Very, very good. I mm-hmm. think the second Land Shark 
sketch, which is Jaws 3. So the, yeah. it's actually not called Land Shark, but it's actually Jaws 2 and Jaws 3. There's sequels for, for Jaws. That one is so fun because when they're, when they're in the police station and, and Land Shark is there and get a posse, sur- surround the area. Uh, <laughs> and he takes over the radio station. Very good. So those are sort of my, my runner is up. Uh, but my okay. favorite sketch of the season I think it's the best sketch. I was blown away because I had never seen it before, nor had I had ever seen wow. it talked about before. And it, in fact, involves, well, it barely involves a cast member. Uh, Gilda is on at the very, very end. Episode 21, Buck Henry hosting and doing a sketch called Talk Back with Frank yes. Noland. <laughs> this is my favorite find of the entire season. I love this sketch. So the setup is Buck Henry plays Frank Noland, who is hosting a television call-in talk show. And he's all alone. It's a call-in show. He's got nine phone lines and nine phones in front of him. And he keeps giving you all nine phone numbers to call in. And he begins this very, uh, you know, Ted Baxter-esque Bill O'Reilly-esque sort of guy. You you call me. I'll talk to you. I'll tell you what the right answer is. I'll, I'll shoot down your opinion. Call me. Talk back. Frank Nolan. And his, his initial topic is federally supported municipal bonds. Yes or no? That's our topic today. Federally supported municipal bonds. Yes or no? And nobody calls. Like I know you've got an opinion out there. Federally supported municipal bonds. So he's got to figure out a way to make the phones ring. So what does he go to? All right. New topic. I can talk about more than just bonds. Forced busing. I know you've got opinions on forced busing. Give us a call here on Talkback. And it gives all the numbers again. And he sort of sits. Nothing happens. All right. Soviet communism. Let's give it a chance. That's right. Here and now in the United <laughs> States, Soviet communism. Call me. Talk back with Frank Nolan. Nobody called. Killing puppies. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> Incest. I practice it. Why don't you? <laughs> and and of course, no one calls for the entire segment. Watching Buck Henry go from supremely confident, Frank Noland, you call me, I'll tell you my opinion, I'll talk to you, slowly losing his moxie, slowly losing his edge, slowly devolving into saying anything and everything to get a phone line ringing. It is absolutely hilarious. Hilarious. Frankly, I'm totally in favor of using federally supported municipal bonds to pay for forced busing of Soviet communists to come into your homes to kill your puppies. (laughs) Give me a call, won't you? The lines are open. Tell me what you think about it. Gilda comes out at the very end and escorts him off of the set. Like, he's I don't know why the phones aren't ringing. He's sort of mumbling to himself. Two things. One is... It does sort of foretell this culture today in which the most ridiculous thing you can say gets clicks, the sports hot take, whatever you say. There's a part of that here. And I also wonder if Bob Odenkirk and David Cross had seen this sketch because there's a very famous Mr. Mr. Show sketch in which David Cross is hosting a TV call-in show. And their twist is that he's taping a show that airs the next day. And so people who are watching are constantly calling about the topic he wanted to talk about yesterday and not the topic he wants to talk about today. If you haven't seen that also go watch that Mr. Show sketch, but there's a very clear echo of this in the Mr. Show sketch. 
Buck Henry, I can't say enough about how good he is in this sketch, which again includes essentially no other SNL cast members. I don't know. I try to look up who wrote this and I, I don't know who wrote this talkback sketch. But to me, it's the best sketch. This is the best sketch of season one. You find it in episode 21. That is a lot about a sketch that none of us had ever seen before. <laughs> um, but that's what this podcast is for. We're going to let people know uh, what they should go back and uh, the classics that they should know about. My best sketch, hands down. So one of my introductions to SNL was the uh, vinyl record that my parents had. I was probably 10 years old. I was 10 years old in 1983 or maybe even younger when I would listen to the SNL record. And this is one of the skits that was on the record because they even recognized at the time that it was a classic. And it is Chevy Chase and Richard Pryor's word association sketch, Mm -hmm. which lit the world on fire at the time for good reason. I'm not going to actually say any of the sketch because it is very racially tinged. But this is what I was talking about with some of the danger that could be on the show. Right. Where they start to go back and forth and associate. And then uh, <laughs> it ends up with uh, with Richard Pryor uh, saying, uh, dead honky. <laughs> if you haven't seen the sketch, I'm sure it's available somewhere. But definitely check it out. For this episode, uh, like I said, they were on a seven-second delay Um, because they were afraid of what Pryor was going to say. And they also let Pryor, uh, he was such a big star, they let him bring his own writers. They let him do anything he wanted on that show. Right. So this sketch was written by Paul Mooney, who's a famous uh, um, uh, comic, and also wrote a lot for for Pryor. Pryor also had his ex-wife give like a stand-up routine, which was just (laughs) awful. Had some of his uh, his friends on on another sketch that was was, uh, on the same show where uh, Dan Aykroyd's whole family turns black <laughs> right. because they move into a, a, a black neighborhood. Um, that's a, that's a forgotten sketch. That's, that's pretty good, but it's the, yeah, for me, it's the chase and prior word association. If you don't know why it's great, go check it out. Um, because it was the danger on the show yeah. um, that, uh, that I showed, I think shows like the heights of where the, where the show could go. I also, for number two, had Landshark 2, yeah. which is, um, you know, an example of a, a rare example of a sketch that's a follow-up that's actually better than the the, yes. the original sketch. The second I one mean, is clearly better than the first. I mean, the first one's very good. But the second one is, is next level. Have suggested in the past that there are ways to escape injury, even from the deadliest of the ocean sharks, the great white. One method commonly spoken of by experts in this area... <laughs> is to graciously invite the uh, fish into your living room and <laughs> offer him a, a soda pop. They start to add in a whole lot of things to an already funny pre- premise. I mean, go back and watch some of the follow-up Matt Foley, <laughs> Chris Farley sketches, and they're, they're really bad. So it's hard to write a second version of a sketch that's better than the first, and they, they managed to do it on this one. And then finally, Bassomatic. Love it. <laughs> when Lorraine says, that's good bass. <laughs> that's terrific bass. Yes. That's terrific bass. Great. That was one of the one of the ones that became one of the tent poles of the show for, for a good reason. Most underrated or forgotten sketch. What are the ones that people should watch that uh, that they might not know anything about? Okay, let me do this. This is not this is my you know second, third sort of sort of place winners. 
One is, we haven't mentioned him yet, so forgive us. Andy Kaufman, who's brilliant, is on the show, what, five times throughout season one, uh, doing various, you know, little stand-up bits, and they're all very, very good. The one that most people know is the is the Mighty Mouse sketch, which is from season one, episode one, where he's he's lip syncing to Mighty Mouse. Very good. <laughs> but the one that I think is just as good and that I don't think people, you know, like is underrated or forgotten is the old McDonald sketch. So Andy Coffin comes on stage with a record player playing a very old version of old McDonald. And he's got to get people from the audience to help him do the verses. And they're all <laughs> lip syncing together. Kaufman's timing is immaculate. I cannot say enough about how perfect he has to be with the lip sync to make this work. And he is dead on. And he is able to, without saying anything, just sort of moving people on stage as their parts come up, is able to get these performances out of members of the audience. It's really incredible. That is one that is overlooked, again, because there are other more famous Andy Kaufman bits in the course of season one. The other one that I will mention, because it sort of sets a template that they will mind that I think is a, is a successful template, and it's a show that I thought I would hate, but I kind of, I don't want to say perversely like, but I thought, eh, you know, it, it's kind of fun. The one hosted by Desi Arnaz, who is well mm. over the age of most viewers of SNL, but, yeah. uh, you know, from, from I Love Lucy, I guess we should mention this. Desi Arnaz, the male star of I Love Lucy, married to Lucille Ball for a number of years. And so there's a sketch uh, which would set this template, which is, um, I'll call it the rejected premise sketch. So they would go back to this over the years. This is the first instance of this. And so Desi Arnaz comes on and says, you know, I Love Lucy was a big hit. But uh, but back then, uh, we weren't sure how the plot was going to go. We ended up with I Love Lucy, but there were all these other possibilities. And we, we screen tested them before we found one that worked. And so you go through these various iterations of I Love Lucy. Uh, Desi Arnaz Jr. plays plays Desi Arnaz. And Tom Schiller does a Desi Arnaz impression, which is pretty darn good. And so you have... I saw Lucy, like on the streets. I loathe Lucy, which there's a little bit of mimed physical violence. I love asparagus. <laughs> I love Louis Anderson. It's forgotten because it's kind of a forgotten episode with Desi Arnaz, but that that template shows so much promise. And I think it's, it works well here, but they would go back to that in the future. So I like that. So I've already said too much. My most underrated forgotten sketch is from the early Lily Tomlin episode, uh, which I think is episode five, six, episode six of the season. It's late in the show too. And it is the lady construction worker sketch. Oh, I hate you. So Lily Tomlin is the <laughs> teacher in the classroom and all the female uh, cast members are the students. And the conceit here is that she is teaching the female construction workers how to catcall and how to harass passersby on the street, as male construction workers do. Dan Aykroyd is the male who is being leered at through this sketch. None of the males wanted to do this. Of course, Belushi famously was not treating women on the show very well at all, just outright refused. They eventually got Aykroyd to do it because no one wanted to be, you know, mocked by the female cast members. Crazy pecs. Where'd you get those pecs? Why don't you flex them for me, Butch? Uh, give me a cheap thrill. Uh, how do you like a staple in your navel? <laughs> okay, just hold on a minute. What do you think I am? 
Men have feelings too, you know. Come on, you eat this stuff up like a fork, you know. I mean, you love it. Written by the two or two of the female writers, Ann Beats and, and Rosie Schuster. It's the first classroom sketch. So again, one of those motifs they go back to where, where they put a bunch of cast members in a classroom with a teacher. This is the first one of those. They get most of the cast involved. And I think it also shows on this show, on NBC's Saturday night, um, in spite of this discussion, I don't want to discount it because I wasn't there, but there's this discussion here that the show was very unfriendly to women, unfriendly to minorities. We can talk deeper about that as we go. But I think this sketch in particular shows very early on in season one that it was going to be a show that would allow females to have power, that would allow females to have a voice, that would allow females to have a point of view. All female leads on the, on the, on, on, on the sketch, all female written and extremely funny. But again, it's not to say that there were not problems or issues. Uh, Ann Beats here talking with the Television Academy Foundation uh, about the relationship between the women on the show and the men, and specifically with John Belushi. Belushi got kind of adversarial about the women on the show, and I think partly because of the fact that he resented the fact that I was working with his wife and she was spending a lot of time on our project and kind of taking her focus away from him. And I think he got resentful about that. And he used to tell Lauren he should fire the girls. And he used to refuse to be in pieces that we wrote and things like that. So it became a lot more difficult and complicated. So yeah, that was one of the topics I wanted to touch is that, you know, later in SNL, people had the idea that it was not friendly towards women or minorities. But when you watch this first season... There are plenty of, I mean, you had, you had female writers. You had Rosie Schuster, you had Marilyn Miller, um, you had Ann Beats, and they would write a lot of sketches from a female perspective, and uh, I think they were pretty well represented. Now, could they have been more represented? Um, were they as well represented as they are on the show now? No, but fairly progressive for the time. I, I don't think the show gets enough credit uh, for that back in 1975. Agreed. So your okay. choice for most underrated or forgotten sketch. Well, I mumbled under my breath, I, swearing at you. You hate me. Th- yes. Th- uh, yes. Uh, that is my, that was my pick, but I have backups. Fortunately, I came prepared. Uh, love the sketch. And this is one of the ones that was on the record that I had as a youngster. Ackroyd does bedtime stories to Gilda Radner. Um, right. He's where a, she asked daddy, tell me a bedtime story. And the bedtime story is about a prince that happens to be going through all the stuff that he's going, going through down at the, uh, down at the garage where he works. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of technical lingo that, uh, you know, Ackroyd was very precise and I'm pretty sure he gets everything right uh, with the technical lingo. Uh, it's just a brilliant kind of use of specificity you know, to, 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 for comedy and it's just, uh, it's just great. So that one might be actually fairly famous. So it might not be a forgotten sketch, but it's, uh, yeah, it's I don't, really I don't think one. I knew that one before seeing yeah. season one. So I don't know how well known it is. Did the princess find the frog? No, but I did right in the starter drive, right between the Bendix spring and the armature. So I pulled out the armature, replaced all the brushes. Did and Bambi it run- come out of the forest? Bambi? 
Yeah, Bambi came out of the forest. This guy was going about 60. Whammo! Radiator to grill, gone. Another one, uh, Jane Curtin falls in love with a man who shoots everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is, uh, so the subtext of this is that she's very lonely and she's willing to forgive a lot of things in men. (laughs) Yes. 15 years since she knew a man's touch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah so chevy chase comes comes in and uh i believe he's holding a gun like elmer fudd yeah and he ends up shooting everyone in her household <laughs> and she's like it's okay it's okay because <laughs> <laughs> she like him she, anyway <laughs> she thinks he's about to propose to her is is the is the hitch so it shoots the dog and the kids and shoots her at one point yeah that's a good sketch and then the last one chase and newman are at dinner and she gives him this a speech about how uh, they don't understand each other anymore. Yeah. And yeah. he answers her by saying a bunch of made-up words. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's just kind of like an absurdist, speak to me in your in your own words. And yeah. Yep. It's dumb, but it was fun. So sketch that aged poorly or could never be done now. There is a sketch where Franken and Davis do oh, yeah. what would happen if the Indians actually won and... <laughs> They held they held the whites in slavery. It's basically uh, making fun of like Native American mascot names. Yeah, I don't know if you could do that. The, obviously, anybody with a brain recognizes that they are making fun of you know racism, racism against Native the treatment of Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they actually got a letter from uh, Native American activist Chris Spotted Eagle. He sent them a poster with the inscription "Lay it on." So he he got the joke and he enjoyed it. But yeah, I don't know that that's one that 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 uh, you could do today. There isn't a whole lot, you know, for for comedians that say, well, back in the day you could say anything and you could there's no whole lot in this episode or in this season where you couldn't have done it today. There's some stuff, but but not a whole lot. Yeah, the one I uh, highlighted for this category of sketch that age poorly or couldn't do today is from episode 11. It's, uh, I think, uh, I don't know if it looks at books, but it's one with Jane. Uh, John Belushi playing a male impersonator named Sheila. Uh, so he <laughs> talks about how he uses chocolate sprinkles as his stubble, just pasted on his face, using masking tape to avoid showing his pregnancy. But look, the only joke here is that Belushi clearly is a man because you can look at him and see he's a man. Right. I don't think necessarily... That's going to fly these days, considering that, well, all things considered, I'm not sure they'd write the same thing today. Can I ask you how you managed to disguise your secondary sexual characteristics? Uh, Yoga breath control. (laughs) And uh, masking tape. Really uh, holds them in there. I mean, uh, I I never jiggle when I'm on stage. What's the matter? It's cramps. Sorry. Uh, Most prescient sketch. Which sketch told the future? This one's easy for me, if you'll allow me to go first. Most prescient sketch is the thing that actually happened, the triple track. This uh, commercial (laughs) for the (laughs) razor blade that has (gasps) three blades. Uh, The tagline, because you'll believe anything when we tell you three (laughs) blades, because it gives you a better shave than two blades. Now, of course, you have the Mach 5, and I think Schick has a five-blade or a six-blade razor. I mean, the Mach 3 from Gillette was like 1996. So it was only about 20 years before the triple track razor uh, actually came to fruition. 
Yeah, they won't be happy until your head comes completely off. <laughs> For me, it is a sketch with Curtin and Morris, which is called Black Voices, where he is hosting a TV show. Um, and Jane Curtin is on the show as playing the role of an African-American author, which Morris re uh, refers to her as Soul Sister Curtin. <laughs> And it's just so funny because she, you know, she's obviously this Upper West Side white woman, and uh, he talks to her about her, you know, her experience in the black community and all that kind of stuff. And to me, it was prescient just because, you know, there are a whole lot of times during the Black Lives Matter movement and and more recently where, uh, you know, white women <laughs> kind of tried to have their moment, and uh, it's really it's really prescient in that way. In fact, Bill Burr, you know, hosted SNL a couple of years ago, and he has he has a whole um, monologue about this, about how wet, white women were basically stepping over black people in order to try to gain clout during the Black Lives Matter movement. So uh, I thought that was pretty prescient. One other one I wanted to mention, Chevy Chase plays uh, the piano under the name Very White, which is like Barry White. Yeah. It's 100% what Flight of the Concords ended up doing with their career, like it, it is a hundred percent, you know, kind of their vibe about, you know, being sexy, but then also being nerdy and having songs that are like very particular about how we're going to make love and stuff like that. So I thought that was pretty precious. <laughs> Best musical guest of the season. There are a lot of choices here because on some episodes, there are multiple musical guests. Uh, Christian, I'll, I'll let you take first crack at this one. Best musical guest of the season. This is an easy one. It's obviously Simon and Garfunkel playing the reunion. They had broken up five years before. They hated each other. Uh, they came back on the show, Paul Simon show, which is episode two, playing Homeward Bound, uh, Scarborough Fair, and other songs. So I am an S&G fan, and so I was happy to see them back together. Now, not when I was two, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's an easy one for me. Uh, a special mention to two specific performances one the very first musical guest on the very first episode billy preston doing nothing from nothing which i love that song and it's such an energetic performance that's great and then randy newman doing sail on a song about you know the slave ships bringing bringing the slaves to america that was early that was the most you know counterculture thing that they did even early on was letting randy newman play sail on on snl but my favorite best musical guest appeared twice, Leon Redbone. Wow. Those performances are amazing. He uh, Episode 22, his second time back, he does an amazing version of Shine on Harvest Moon. There is something very dramatic about those performances. He is seated with a spotlight, and that's it. Uh, there's a tuba that accompanies him, I think, on one song on each show. He's fantastic. The songs are amazing. The crowd, the audience seems, you know, transfixed on this guy. And of course, the very unique voice of Leon Redbone. I thought both of his performances in this first season were outstanding. By the way, shout out to uh, Gordon Lightfoot, RIP. Yes, yes. Who, who played a, a small role in a samurai sketch at the end of his performances. <laughs> Best recurring character for you. Oh, hey, speaking of samurai, clearly for me, it's the samurai. 
uh, okay. is the best recurring character of season one. You have the Samurai Hotel on the prior show, which is not quite fully formed. It's it's okay. It's not quite there. Uh, Samurai says the only words he says all season long, which is, well, I can dig where you're coming from when prior threatens him. <laughs> uh, Samurai Deli on episode 10. Uh, Samurai Divorce in episode 13. The This might be the best Samurai moment of the year. And it doesn't involve the Samurai. It's when Jane Curtin playing his wife suggests cutting the kid horizontally instead of vertically <laughs> as they're about to split the kid in the divorce proceedings. It's hilarious. Uh, Samurai Taylor with Buck Henry, episode 21. Very, very funny. Very good. And then uh, Samurai General Practitioner in episode 24. Very quickly, Samurai General Practitioner features the second nude woman of the season on SNL. Yes. How did that happen? There's a naked went, woman in the middle of Weekend Update one week, and then Samurai General Practitioner puts an x-ray of a naked woman on the screen. I went back and I looked at the news coverage to see if there was any sort of controversy about that. Apparently, just passed by. Nobody cared. Wow. We'd we, have naked women on broadcast TV in, in 1976. These are the details that wasn't that special. <laughs> <laughs> focuses on to bring to you the listener all right uh, imagine your, imagine that's what i found interesting about the about sketch <laughs> uh your best recurring character okay this might be a cheat but it's kaufman he was on what three or four times yeah uh he's just a genius at work the odd thing about when he was on the bergen show which is a, a episode four she introduces him as a genius which I don't know much about stand-up comics, but I would not want to be introduced as a genius because I give <laughs> you too much to, to live up to. Right. But, the, but he has her introduce him as a genius, and then he goes on and he's, he's a genius, <laughs> which is uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's big genius energy right there. But he tells the Spanish cannonball story, um, does an Archie Bunker imitation with his voice, and it's just it's an awkward, cringe style. But again, and then he pre Kaufman. he pretends the audience is laughing at him, yes. which makes him sad, which is funny, which makes him more sad, which makes more people laugh, and it's just like a cycle of of it's like a, a humor cycle. Uh, it's just so ingenious. It seems, and, you know, it seems of so. Course it seems so ad. It seems so ad libbed and sort of off the cuff, or at least it seems easy, right, to do some of those things. The amount of preparation and planning for this one you're talking about, and I mentioned this uh, in my notes. You know, he has these honks. So he's he's crying, but he's honking while he's crying. And so these honks are placed in just the right places to encourage the crowd to laugh at him more. Like, you have to think about that. How do I make sure the crowd is going to laugh at the part I need them to laugh at so that this works? Oh, I'll, I'll honk. I'll honk as I'm crying. Like, those little things, little details are what makes all of his performances uh, even better than they, they could have been. Agreed. And then there's, uh, you know, Old MacDonald and uh, Mighty Mouse and all the stuff yeah. um, that people have already seen. But you should go back and check it out again. Best celebrity impression for you. So best celebrity impression for me is a is a tiny bit of a cheat. So if you cheat with Kaufman, I'm going to cheat a bit on best celebrity impression and actually mention one that you just talked about. Chevy Chase as very white, which is clearly <laughs> a, you know, a very white, not quite impression, but 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 yeah, impression. I laughed out loud because he is, you know, the style, and you mentioned Flat of a Concourse, but 
it is all tension and no release. So, you know, Barry White gets the, gets you going, gets you going, gets you going. Then the big chorus, we're going to make love. We're going to do this. And so Barry White never gets there. It's just all the tension, 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 more tension, tension, tension. And the way that Chase plays that, and he, you know, he was a musician too, so he's not faking his way through some of this stuff. Uh, very funny. It's not a straight impression, but Chevy Chase doing very white is my favorite celebrity appearance of the season. So I figured, why not sing to you now? Why not sing with all my heart and all my breath and sing so you can hear me, baby, and I want you to. For me, I think I went with Chase Chase doing Ford. It's not a great impression, but it was the impression of the season. It was the big newsmaker. It set the tone for the show. So I'm going with that. I also did enjoy Belushi doing Joe Cocker, um, which he had done <laughs> in Lemmings. So he actually, during the Lemmings run, Joe Cocker came to see him and got up on stage and they did it together. So Joe Cocker clearly and spoiler alert, appreciated it. they will do that in the show soon too. Correct. Yes. And Baba Wawa. Um, I think we should mention that. <laughs> I think we've got a sound clip on that on, on Barbara Walters, <laughs> what she thought of Baba Wawa. I hated the Gilda Radner, uh, Gilda Radner, Baba Wawa until I walked into my daughter's room one night and she was up watching it. It was a Saturday night. I said, what are you doing up? And she said, I'm watching Baba Wawa, Mom. And I said, well, I mean, how, you know, look what she's doing. And my daughter said, oh, Mommy, lighten up. And then when, and then that, I did. Best episode. I think you would choose one of two back-to-back episodes. And that's either episode nine with Elliot Gould or episode 10 with Buck Henry. I think that mm. that's the peak of this first season in my mind. And if I'm forced to choose, and I am because that's the way we do things here, I do think it's the Elliot Gould episode nine that won the show, the Emmy. I think that's the best episode of this season. There are a lot of things going on here. You have the Gilda marriage runner that runs through the episode. It starts with Gilda and Elliot Gould went out for dinner the night before and Gould's trying to blow her off and she thinks it's more than what it was. And so this continues through the show and eventually they get married at the end of the show. Uh, It's fun when she brings on her mom to introduce her mom to Elliot Gould. Uh, You've got a good group of sketches here. I think here is, I mentioned on uh, earlier, this is where they're really honing in on a feel and a tone for the show. It's the first time the cast isn't deferential to the host. They just get in- integrated into what they're doing. This show has uh, the Shimmer ad. It's a floor wax and a dessert topping. Very good. Uh, <laughs> the internal demolitionist sketch, which is just what it sounds like. Uh, Chase and Gold are, are demolishing things inside of a house. This is a weekend update where Chippy, Ch- Chippy Chase asks the country to send him pot so we can test it to make sure that there's nothing wrong with it. It's running gag. Albert yeah. Brooks' last film, which is your favorite Brooks film, not just because it is his last, but because it is the one where he has these uh, these computers and mechanisms trying to tell him exactly what people find funny. I did like that. Yeah, and and so, the, but the main one I want to point out here is the the killer bees attack led by Elliot Gold. I think this is a really important sketch in episode one or in season one and for the future of the show because it's a key to how things would shift in terms of how they compose sketches. You had a lot of sketches in the 
episodes running up to here being these very buttoned up sort of one joke sketches, you know, 90 seconds, two minutes, two and a half minutes. And here you have this longer sketch, which begins one way, which is a feint and goes a different way. So it begins with the, the killer bees attacking and then the camera drops and something is clearly wrong. And it turns out that Davy Wilson, the director, is drinking. And so Lorne has to, you break the fourth wall. Lorne has to go into the director's room and he confronts Davy Wilson and he beats up Davy Wilson. And John Belushi is in the background saying, you know, Davy Wilson, he was an alcoholic and Lorne gave him another chance. And it's great to see a guy back up on his feet. All those pieces work really well together. In a sense, when it starts, you're not sure what's real and what's not. Is the camera really malfunctioning? Is there a problem? And you know, Elliot Gould sort of breaks character. And it doesn't really end. Like, there's no end. It starts with the killer bees attack, but it doesn't end there. It goes somewhere else entirely. I think that whole feel, that whole sketch, and the, that Gould episode is important for how the show shifts into understanding what it would be. Yep. Good ones. My best episode, probably not going to surprise you. It's the prior episode, mostly because of the vibes, but they're also the highs on that show are as high as, as the show gets this season. There's a Belushi Samurai Hotel where uh, Pryor is a bellboy and refers to him as Yo Mama Son. <laughs> Pryor does a, a looks at books where he dresses up like a white guy and he says no one caught on because there are a lot of dumb honkies out there. There's the sketch where the black families move into uh, Dan Aykroyd's neighborhood and right. his whole family turns black. I really like that one just because it plays on, you know, the unwarranted fears from white people at the time that, you know, if a black family moves into your fa- into your neighborhood, your whole family is going to turn black. There's the exorcism. Uh, yeah. Exorcism sketch yeah. With Newman, the, the timing of that is perfect where, you know, the, the bed floats and then lands on his foot <laughs> and he, that becomes part of his chant. Um, so, and then of course there's the, uh, the chase prior word association sketch. So for me, I think that was, uh, I think that was the best episode for any number of reasons. What was the worst episode? Uh, the worst, I'm probably going to agree on this. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say the Jill Clayburgh, what is close, but we, we get <laughs> Mr. Bill and we get old McDonald from there. Louise Lasser, who's episode 23, second to last episode of the season, famously so bad, or at least Lauren was so unhappy with it, he took it out of reruns. So it's an episode that perhaps few people have seen unless you deliberately, intentionally go back to see it. She was, um, she only did one sketch with a cast member that was Chippy Chase. She insisted on doing the sketch where she talks to a dog. Uh, she insisted on doing this 10-minute thing near, near the end of the episode where she talks about how bad of a year it had been for her. She was arrested and had some drugs on her. I, the one thing you'd say, and I have this in my notes somewhere, I guess it is, and this is you know going back 47 years or whatever it is, I guess it's hard to for us to appreciate how big Louise Lasser was to a point where at some point you might just say, all right, we don't need this trouble. But she was just so big. She, uh, you know, reading, it's like she was as big as Chevy Chase was at that time. So to have her on the show was a pretty big deal. I guess that's why they put up with all of it, because it wasn't because it was a good show. Um, she actually nearly didn't go on. She kind of had a breakdown after dress. They, they did get her to go on and, and, and complete the show. But it's a rough one. It's a real rough one. Agree 100%. You've already said everything that probably needs to be said about it. My only... 
observation is that Louise Lasser is basically the same person as Natasha Leone. <laughs> um, they are one in the same all the way down to the, to the drug arrest. So <laughs> just watch the dog sketch and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, also, the Desi Arnaz uh, was really bad. I didn't like that episode. Uh, yeah, that one was okay, as I said earlier. It was not, not terrible. What host fit the show best? A lot of these we talked about before. I have four names, uh, very, very quickly. Candace Bergen clearly four. got the show early on and knew what they were trying to do and wanted to be a part of it and may have saved it in a way because the first three shows, the cast was not involved all that much. The couple of shows afterwards, I think, were still a little shaky. So Bergen coming in and saying, you're good. I believe in this. That's a big deal. Elliot Gould, Buck Henry, both hosted twice for good reason. And the last one I'll throw on here, I thought Peter Boyle was a great host hmm. of his episode. I don't know if there were any real standout, memorable things he was in, but I, I thought he served the material very well. And uh, I like Peter Boyle as host. I only picked one. <laughs> That's okay. And of course, of course it was going to be one uh, that you already picked. And it's Buck Henry, who just slid right in and you couldn't tell that he wasn't a cast member yeah he just he fit right in uh he did everything that they want they wanted which is why like you said he was back twice samurai sketches uh etc he's he was solid you know there are others candace bergen was obviously great etc i'm gonna stop calling on you first because you always steal my my picks um <laughs> you take it you go host who flopped this is the host who flopped. who flopped oh my god so we've already talked about louise lasser so we'll leave poor louise lasser the ghost of Louise Lasser. I don't know if she's still with us or not. We'll leave her alone. Raquel Welch. What was she doing on the show? Yeah. <laughs> like she's a, she's a very beautiful woman. I think that's it. There you go. That's why she was on the show. The only worthwhile bit on the show was Aykroyd making fun of America's switch to the metric system Fair, yes, by, yes. by doing the decabet <laughs> <laughs> by, by saying the, <laughs> the alphabet is going to, uh, it's going to be 10 letters. Yeah. We're going to condense the, the alphabet to 10 letters, and these are the letters, and these are the new words. This is how you say new things. That's uh, that's a worthwhile sketch. The rest is just trash. It's uh, uh, cast members trying to sleep with Raquel Welch and just bad. So aside from the five-minute <laughs> Jerry Weiss movie of her dancing. <laughs> My host to Beth, flop oh, yours. Yeah. is uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Ooh, wow. Go do tell. They're, uh, look. They're funny? Yes, they're funny. And they did some of their well-rehearsed sketches uh, themselves. But it felt like such a step back because the hosts were so separated from the rest of the show. There, there's one good sketch. The, the Prison Folly sketch is good. <laughs> but the rest of that show feels very segmented. Like, they would be great to host their own special as host of NBC's Saturday Nights, in which you're trying to play with everyone and sort of become part of the SNL feel for the week i don't think it was very successful i thought it was just a, a show that was very like we're gonna do our thing and you guys do your thing and that didn't work out very well for me uh best catchphrase you want to go for i don't want to steal yours uh you're gonna steal mine aren't you never mind <laughs> all right see see now you, you stole mine yeah never mind it was also <laughs> my best catchphrase of the season Those and are, you know why it's the best catchphrase because people still use it yeah like I was on Twitter yesterday and people are tweeting out the <laughs> Emily Latella gift. Never mind. Never mind. I know we wanna we wanna stay current, so I'm not gonna mention what it was in regards to, but yeah, people still know that. If they if they know anything about SNL's first first season, 
it's uh, it's Emily Latella. So uh, busting that's, that's school fine. children, the Eagle Rights Amendment, canker research, which uh, actually I support as a sufferer of canker sores, yeah. which are terribly painful and still you can't do much of anything about. Uh, the death penalty, the presidential yeah. erection, violins on television, all great uh, Emily Latella uh, subjects throughout the year that all end with her saying, never mind. Miss Latella, Miss Latella. What? The editorial was in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment. Not Eagle Rights, Equal Rights. Equal Rights? Yes. For who? For people, Miss Latella. Oh, well, that's reasonable. Yes. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) The skit that could be made into a movie. I'll go first, because I I doubt we're going to pick the same sketches here. So the sketch that could be made into a movie is one that essentially was made into a movie. Episode eight, when Candace Bergen came back to host a second time, the latent elf sketch. (laughs) So this sketch as written for SNL at that point is essentially a big gay joke, right? You're, you're, you're a latent elf. You've been hiding it all these years. Yeah. Um, replace Elf with, with gay, and you sort of get where the sketch was going. Uh, and then the, the, the kicker at the end is, your father is also an elf, and it's Chase and Ackroyd being elfy. But this was kind of elf. This is Will Ferrell. Yeah. This is Will Ferrell as an adult acting like an elf. Uh, well, you know, being an elf in the film, it's not dead on, and certainly Elf the film with Will Ferrell is not quite, doesn't quite have the same gay joke uh, undertones as the latent elf sketch, but you could see it spinning into something like that eventually. I had not thought of that. That's good. Let's see. Mine would be, I would watch the hell out of a samurai movie. <laughs> just Belushi doing samurai. Do you think it'd be too much for an hour and a half of Belushi just doing samurai? I think an hour and a half of Belushi not saying any words would be real tough. Unless you had Buck Henry. Because Henry played off him to perfection. Played off of someone who was not saying any actual words. It is perfect. essentially, a, yeah, it's a, the skit is a silent movie. Yeah. So it would be, yeah. A, yeah, it would be a, it would harken back to the early days, of the Harold Lloyd <laughs> and Buster Keaton movies. Um, and Belushi could be physical. So that's right. I think that that would carry a movie. How do we feel about an Emily Latella movie? I think that would end up like Stuart saves his family. <laughs> <laughs> she finds a bag of money and she has to get it back to somebody that she misunderstands what it's from and the mafia is somehow involved. This is like the, this is like every, every SNL uh, story. It's just a big misunderstanding. You see, yeah, everything's a big mis- misunderstanding and she misunderstanding things. So I'm in for the Emily Latella movie. All right. Uh, weekend update. Now there's a lot of things we can go on weekend update. So we just said best moment. So it could be a joke or a guest or your your favorite best moment from Weekend Update season one? It's just a single joke that uh, happened th- midway through, um, and I guess it's just my my type of humor. Uh, here's the joke: Well, the popular TV personality known as Professor Backwards was slain in Atlanta yesterday by three masked gunmen. According to reports, neighbors ignored the professor's cries of "Ple, ple." <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, that's my moment. That is also my moment. That oh, my no, 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 nothing, nothing wrong I'll with another it. one. If we agree that that can be good. So I would just say this is a, this is a, a, a this is a Michael O'Donoghue joke. 
which means yes. you, you can't go far enough. You, you, there is no way you can go too far with a joke. This is real, right? There was a real guy, Professor yes. Backwards, who was on <laughs> yes. Ed Sullivan and Mike Douglas, and he could do things backwards and read backwards. And people apparently thought because he was on TV, he had a lot of money. So he was blackmailed by some guys. Um, and eventually they, they killed him. They shot him and killed him. This joke was on, this joke was on weekend update two days after his murder. And it, it works on a couple levels. One, it's funny. First of all, two, it's that O'Donohue slash and burn kind of humor. And three, I don't know if they were doing this intentionally, but looking back, it is if doing this joke they are murdering the type of show that Professor Backwards would be on, right? That type of humor, <laughs> that type of show that Lorne never wanted to be, the Ed Sullivan, Mike Douglas having this weird Professor Back. They were not doing this humor at all. They had no compunction about making a joke about his death because it was nothing that they wanted to be associated with. So the joke is great. You know, it helps d- help to define the, the show's humor. And also the fact that they were sort of killing this previous brand of, of of humor on television makes it sort of three levels of great. There is one joke that ended up in the first episode of Weekend Update, and then I think they actually brought it back later in the season, the same exact joke uh, for no reason. And it was uh, the post office uh, has a new stamp commemorating prostitution. It's 15 cents, but 25 cents if you want to lick it. <laughs> that was a joke that Alan Zweibel had written before the show even started. That was in a book, a book he gave Lorne Michaels said, here's the stuff I write. And that book was in there. And that's why he, I believe that's why he got assigned to do some weekend update stuff. He could write those sort of quick one liners in that, in that way. Such a good joke. They used it twice. Um, Best commercial. Our final category, best commercial. There were so many commercials this particular season. I feel like I'm going to steal yours. I want to let you go first. Well, I've already said Bassomatic was, uh, was right. my favorite. That's right. But it is not. Oh. It is. I picked a different one from the Diane Cannon episode where Diane Cannon is in a bathtub and uh, goes by the name of Cindy <laughs> Cleavage. Yeah. And Ackroyd is selling, as Roy Wadmaker is selling celebrity bathwater. <laughs> <laughs> and they just he just fires off these one-liners about uh, celebrities. <laughs> He's like... Just imagine filling your steam iron with this jar of Cicely Tyson <laughs> or imagine gargling with Tatum O'Neill or chugging a chilled stein of Shelly Winters. I think my favorite was a, was a hearty jug of Warren Oates, which is before, of course, he was starring in Stripes and uh, and with alongside some SNL alums. Um, yeah, that was a fun one. It was just perfect because it's Aykroyd as his like sleaziest self. There's a point at which he has a rat that he throws in the bathtub accidentally, yeah. and they, they're both shocked, and they both kind of break a little bit. So it's got everything. I love I love uh, celebrity bathwater. So the, the, the Bassomatic, but you talked about Bassomatic, but that's just pure accurate. Everyone says they can't imagine anyone else writing that or 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 actually doing it, <laughs> performing it. And Ackroyd said it, it came to him because he saw his grandmother or mother doing that to a fish for like this bully base like oh i'm gonna keep that in mind for 20 years into the future whatever it is is this a canadian thing do, do they do that i in Canada? don't know i don't i don't i'm not a fish guy i i just don't know so if it's not bassomatic uh i think the ad featuring again not a performer but a writer and beats doing the ad for speed 
She's, mm. a, she's a busy mom. How does she have time in the day to do the shopping and take the kids to school and take them to their games and clean up the house and fold her paper bags in a very specific way and keep them in a, uh, in a, in a drawer on the counter? Well, she takes speed. Ask your doctor about speed. Uh, and then ask your friend's doctor and his friend's doctor and your uncle's doctor. <laughs> and that's like a less than 60 second ad. Very well done. Very spot on. The ad for speed with Ann Beats. Read. That, All right. So that's it. That's our we, list of awards. We'll do those awards every single season. And we will add some more. We wanted to do one like rookie of the year, best new cast <laughs> member, but everybody's a new cast member this season yeah, and right. for the next five seasons. So we'll incorporate that at some point. But if you have any suggestions on new categories, send them to us or I don't know. How, how does the internet work? Yeah. Well, how you can we turn this thing on. You can tweet <laughs> at 50 years of SNL, five zero years of SNL. Christian's on Twitter. I'm on Twitter as well. You can reach us there. This episode was free and open and available to everyone, as was the case for our teaser episode setting up the series, giving everyone a taste of what we're doing here at Wasn't That Special. Now, from this point forward, uh, most content will be available only for our subscribers via our Substack, which is at wasn'tthatspecial.com. Again, wasn'tthatspecial.com. Don't need the apostrophe. Just wasn't that special.com. Yes, help us continue the project, keep the show ad free, subscribe monthly, or get a significant discount to join with the annual plan, or power up to the executive producer tier. Access to posts featuring our unused notes for each episode, links to many of the research materials we'll be reading to prep for those episodes, and you can start threads on our chat page where we'll have a robust conversation happening. Plus, if you are an executive producer member, you can take part in our series-ending crowdsourced rankings of seasons, cast members, and more. One of us has to be the math expert to, to, to <laughs> do those rankings. We'll figure that out as we go along. You're going to still have some content in the future that'll be free, but if you want the full experience, and of course you always want to go full WTS, uh, you will need to subscribe. That's at wasn'tthatspecial.com. No apostrophe needed. Wasn'tthatspecial.com. Join us there for this journey through 50 years of SNL. And uh, this this episode is probably, I'm going to guess, a little bit longer than the season episodes will be in the future. Uh, but it's season one, so you have to sort of establish some things as we move forward. You all got your $0 worth. That's right. And again, on Twitter, we're there at 50 years of SNL. It's going to be hard to sort of preview the next episode each time, Christian, because uh, I haven't watched the whole thing yet. Still nope. have to get to the episodes. And it's also very predictable. It's going to be season two. We're going to do these in order, at least these episode shows. We'll have a few special episodes here and there. But our next major episode, episode two, or episode three, I should say, <laughs> season two of NBC's Saturday Night. You know what episode we're going to do next, so if you want to play along, feel free to watch on Peacock. That's right. Watch along. We'll experience this all together. We're a team, the listeners and your, your loyal hosts. For Christian Schneider, I'm Scott Bertram. Can't believe they invited us back to let us do it again. It's a treat. Thanks to the cast and crew and writers. What a blast we've had all week long. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Wasn't That Special. Wasn't That Special.